You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. We'll be reading from Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. And then I'll be reading for us James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. And so beginning in Galatians, God's word says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then moving over into James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and that the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Okay, so in a 2014 New York Times article, author Jessica Bennett writes, There is nothing quite like invoking holiness as a way to brag about your life. But calling something blessed has become the go-to term for those who want to boast about an accomplishment while pretending to be humble, fish for a compliment, acknowledge a success without sounding too conceited, or purposefully elicit envy. Blessed is now used to explain that coveted TED Talk invite, as well as to celebrate your grandmother's 91st birthday. And what the author is getting at is that everybody wants to be blessed, so much so that we will call everything in our lives a blessing. We'll say that uh, our blessed life that the world is telling us, the blessed life is tied to stuff. It's tied to things. It's tied to money, power, influence, acclaim, accomplishments. It's tied to winning, right? You never, you never hear that athlete say, we were really blessed in this loss today. It's always tied to winning. And, and we have a desire to be blessed. That's, that's good because we were created to be blessed. Wanting to live the blessed life is not a bad thing. It's what you were made for, right? Humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation. We alone can claim that we were made in God's very image. He created us to live in a blessed relationship with him, and so it's not a bad thing to desire that. But the question that we need to answer is what does the Bible call the blessed life? Not what does the world say blessing looks like. What does the Bible say the blessed life looks like? And because I don't trust my oratory skills enough to make my point clear, I'm going to go ahead and give it to you right now. My main point this morning is that the blessed life described by the Bible 
is a life full of Holy Spirit-empowered, enduring faithfulness. That's what the blessed life looks like. And so this morning, we're going to continue our study through the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5 by looking at the spiritual fruit of faithfulness. And now, the Bible actually has quite a bit to say about faithfulness, quite a bit to say about faith. Um, so we're, this morning, we're, we're going we're gonna to stay in our passage. We're not going to talk about how uh, the Proverbs say that the wounds of a friend are faithful. We're not going to talk about the real practical advice that Jesus and James both give of letting your yes be yes. If you commit to something, faith, be faithful, follow through, let your yes be yes. And we're, and we're not going to be able to get to the fact that Jesus himself is described in the book of Revelation as faithful and true. We're just going to stay in our passage, and we're going to see what James has to say to us about what faithfulness looks like. And as I began to study for this, I, I actually came to realize that we, could, we really should break this passage down into three sermons. Um, but we're not going to do that, and, and instead of giving you a really long sermon— um, we're just going to ask a couple of questions of the text and see what James is saying to us. We're going we're to ask, what does the fruit of faithfulness look like? What does it look like in our lives and in our communities? And how does that lead to true blessedness? What does it look like? What does it look like? Or, or what is it? What does it look like in our lives and our communities? And how does it lead to blessedness? And those will be our points this morning. So point number one, let's start with what is it? What is the spiritual fruit of faithfulness. Would you look with me in verses two through four? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the word that is translated faithfulness in Galatians 5.22 is the same word that is translated faith here in James chapter 1. And so really we could boil down the, the spiritual fruit of faithfulness is really the fruit of faith. And what we know is that the Bible tells us that faith is a gift. It, it's, it's external to us and comes from us. And in fact, Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 that faith is the gift of God, right? He says, by grace you have been saved through faith, which is not your own doing, but is the gift of God that no one may boast. And so it's, it's, a, it's a gift that's imparted to us for the purposes of salvation and godly living, for the purposes of our justification and, and then our faithfulness in, in that life for godly living. Theologians, though, have described faith as, as what's known as the instrumental cause and not the material cause of our salvation, of our right standing with God, of our faithfulness to him in this life. And so it's like if you were standing in your backyard looking at the dry ground of the California Central Valley, and you look at it, and someone says, make a pool there, and you look at it, and you can't just make it a pool. The, the, the dry dirt is the material cause. It's what, what would be called the material cause, but if I hand you a shovel, well, now you have an instrumental cause. You actually have something that can make the pool exist, and so in a way, that's what's being done with faith and faithfulness. It's external to us and given to us for the purposes of salvation and godly living. Theologian Sinclair Ferguson, though, defines faith like this. He says, faith draws everything from Christ and contributes nothing to him. Faith is simply a shorthand description of abandoning oneself trustingly to Christ, whom God has made our righteousness. And so that means faith and faithfulness is seen by, hear me, trusting God, trusting Christ at all times and in all 
circumstances. That's faithfulness. And it's important for us to realize that as we come to our passage here, that James is writing under the assumption that faith exists in his readers. Right? He says, testing of your faith, and that should not be read as testing for your faith. He's not trying to see if it exists. He's actually, he's actually testing the faith that is there. And so this is why James can actually tell his audience to count the various trials they face as joy in verse 2. Right? Trials, trials are meant to uh, refine the faith that already exists. It's like if you were to put a precious metal in a furnace, it's going to refine out the impurities, and what you're going to get out the other side is a more pure version of what went in. But, but faith is not simply an emotion. It's not simply an intellectual exercise. Saving faith works. It moves. As one theologian puts it, faith never exists apart from repentance being concretely expressed in a life of new obedience to God. Faithfulness always looks like turning away from your sin, turning toward God, and moving that direction. Works as you move. Or you could think about it like this. Faith is like food from the point of view of a, a T-Rex, right? It's undetectable if it's not moving. You'll never know if it's there unless it's moving. Faith works, and, and it works even amidst trials. Tri the trials here are like taking your faith to the gym, right? You go to the gym and you, you exercise your muscles. It's the, the strain of the machines or the weights or whatever it is um, that actually causes your muscles to expand and, and there's more endurance and you can go further and you can do more and bigger things. Douglas Moo writes, like a muscle that becomes strong when it faces resistance, so Christians learn to remain faithful to God over the long haul only when they face difficulty. Trials are meant to press us toward steadfastness. Our faith is grown and strengthened. It, it produces endurance and steadfastness when we encounter trials of all kinds. And, and that trials of all kinds, James is using really, really um, purposefully here. He's using this really, really purposefully because it, it becomes a catch-all term. It, it's so that when you're reading it now, you can't sit there and go, oh, well, he's not talking about me. He doesn't know what I'm going through. No, he used this on purpose to tell you, yes, it's absolutely what you're going through. He's talking about everything that you're enduring right now. Trials of all kinds, trials of various kinds. And so faith produces steadfastness, or we could define it endurance in or, or patient faithfulness. And steadfastness, when it's had its full effect, will make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And now that's a hard word, but let me, let me try to illustrate like this. So you're ill, you, you have an illness, and you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, okay, take this antibiotic two times a day for 10 days. And when you're, when you're done at the 10 days, you'll be, you'll be perfect, you'll be back to normal. What James is saying is that if you go home, because ultimately, what do we do? We all go home, we, we start taking that antibiotic, and after three days, we go like, you know what, I feel pretty good. I don't need to keep taking this all the way into the end, but what you're doing is you're leaving yourself susceptible for the illness to come back. You haven't eradicated it. And so what James is saying, that that's not what real faith looks like. That's not what real Christian faith looks like. Christian faith doesn't just come to Christianity um, in order, when, when life is low, in order to lift you back up and make you feel a little bit better for a while. And then you go, okay, I'm feeling good. I'm back to normal. And I push it off to the side. And then when things get low again, you come back. That's not, that's not the type of faith that James is talking about here. He's talking about a faith that is faithful. It continues taking that prescription all the way to the end, all the way to the end of the Christian life where we are promised perfection. 
And now, perfection is the goal. James isn't pulling any punches. He, this isn't like a wordplay here where we're really not supposed to think it says perfection. Commentators will tell you, though, that James doesn't expect any of us will be perfect in this life. He doesn't expect us to be perfectly sanctified here and now, but he is utterly unwilling to lower the bar. That is the point of faith, and faithfulness is, is to make us perfect. And he's just joining a list of writers and authors throughout redemptive history that have said the same thing. Right? God says to Israel in Leviticus 11, you shall be holy as I am holy. And, and Peter reiterates that in, in his first letter, uh, 1 Peter 1, he reiterates that to New Testament Christians, that we are to be holy as God is holy, perfect, set aside. And, and J, uh, excuse me, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Bible is clear that we are meant to be perfect. That's what we were created for. And true blessedness is found in that perfection, in the perfection that faithfulness creates. So what is the spiritual fruit of faithfulness? It, well, it's, it's God-given. It's a God-given faith. It's faith in action that endures all the way to the end. It is the very medication that, that leads us to perfection. That's what faithfulness is. And so point number two, what does it look like? Look with me in verses five through eight. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And so we have to come to this and acknowledge that there are two types of doubting in the Bible. The word used in verse 6 can be read positively to mean reasoning, logic, uh, trying to figure it out. Um, or it could be read negatively to mean like vacillating or wavering or noncommittal. And, and, and the only way to know how James is using it is the context in which he uses it. And fortunately, James is really clear to us that he means the negative sense. Uh, in verses 6 through 8, he likens uh, doubting to a wave tossed by the sea. And so James's readers and original hearers were almost certainly Jewish, and so what they would have had going on in the back of their mind is the imagery that Isaiah 57.20 gives us. Isaiah 57.20 says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. And so the doubting that James is referring to has a directly negative connotation, right? Wickedness. I don't know that we can get more directly negative than that. But the illustration of the ever-tossing sea actually really un helps us understand what this person looks like, how they act. This person is never settled and, and always uh, changing with the directions of the winds of the day. Uh, th this person is double-minded or, or literally of two minds. They're like a spiritual schizophrenic. But maybe the best quote that I've ever heard or read about um, what this type of person looks like is by a man named G.K. Chesterton writing in 1908 in his book, Orthodoxy. And, and it's a little bit of a long quote, but stay with me because I, I promise it's worth it. Chesterton writes, but the new rebel is a skeptic and will not entirely trust anything. He has no loyalty, therefore he can never really be a revolutionist. 
And the fact that he doubts everything really gets in his way when he wants to denounce anything. For all denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind. And the modern revolutionist doubts not only the institution he denounces, but the doctrine by which he denounces it. As a politician, he will cry out that war is a waste of life. And then as a philosopher, that all life is a waste of time. A pessimist will denounce a policeman for killing a peasant, and then prove by the highest philosophical principles that that peasant ought to have killed himself. The man of this school goes first to a political meeting where he complains that savages are treated as if they were beasts. Then he takes his hat and his umbrella and goes to a scientific meeting where he proves that they practically are beasts. In short, the modern revolutionist, being an infinite skeptic, is always engaged in undermining his own minds. In his book on politics, he attacks men for trampling on morality. In his book on ethics, he attracts, he attacks morality for trampling on men. Therefore, the modern man in revolt has become practically useless for all purposes of revolt. By rebelling against everything, he has lost his right to rebel against anything. By rebelling against everything, he's lost his right to rebel against anything. And this is the type of double-mindedness, the type of doubting that James is referring to. The kind that never commits to anything and always denounces everything, but therefore has no ground to stand on when that actually happens. But I want to take a few minutes and, and explain what the positive type of doubting is that James is not referring to, because I think it's really important for us when we're exercising faith to understand that God actually asks us to doubt. The Bible is actually pretty honest that, uh, that God welcomes the positive type of doubting. He welcomes your questions and he welcomes your reasoning. Think about the book of Job, right? A large portion of the book of Job is just taken up with Job's nonstop complaints and questions to God of why. Just asking why. What, what, how, if you can just explain it to me, how I got to be, how, how things got to be this miserable. If you can explain it to me, how you're just in all of this. If you can just help me understand why, I'll get on board. I, I just want to know why, God. If you can just prove it to me, then I'll be okay with it. And to be honest with you, I used, for years, I found this part of Job infuriating. Because I had a misunderstanding of what God meant when he was talking about doubting here, what James was meaning. I found it infuriating because I'd be like, Job, he's God. He knows what he's doing. Would you just get on board? Like, if you could just peel back and see, like, we get it. It's okay. Like, get, get on board. And then I had kids. My oldest son is three, uh, which means that in the last year and a half alone, I've heard the question why just more times than I can count. Higher the numbers go. Um, and what I've come to see, though, is that my son's questions of why are not a lack of his faith in me. They're actually a sign of his faith in me. My son asks me why because he expects that I know the answers. He expects that I know the answers to his questions. And so Job here is actually showing his faith because, yes, he has questions, he has complaints, but who's he bringing them to? He's bringing them to God, the one with the answers. And you know, if we're honest, if we're honest, we should all read God's word and it should rub us the wrong way from time to time. There should be things in God's word that challenge us. If this is the word of a holy God, we shouldn't expect that we're gonna come to it as an enlightened 21st century humans and say like, oh no, I get it all, I'm good with all of it. 
No, we're going to look at him and be like, oh, okay, come on, get on board, Western civilization, you know. God's word should challenge you like this, and there should be reasons for you to wrestle and ask questions. And if you are not finding these, then I have to be honest with you, I'm pretty sure you're just not reading it. I'm pretty sure if you're not confronted with the holiness of God, and there's not something and often things in here that rub you the wrong way, you're just not reading it. You've, you've instead created a God in your own image rather than reading the word of a God that created you in his. And so wrestle with him. Don't censor him. Read the hard parts of scripture and wrestle. If you find yourself doubting God today in this way, you're, you're doubting him, his goodness in your trials, you're wondering how he could maintain his justice when there's so much agony all around, in faith, ask him why. Express your faith. Ask him why. Pray to him. Seek him in community. Ask other Christians the tough questions. We need to have answers to these as well. Don't let us off the hook. We need to wrestle with these as well. In, in, in Romans chapter 12, uh, Paul, Paul calls us members of one another. When we become Christians, when we are united to Christ by faith, we also are united to one another, and he likens us to a body, each piece being united to one another. And then later on in Romans 12, he, he tells these pieces of the body, those members of one another, that we must rejoice uh, with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We need to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping. And I'm convinced, I've, I've, come, I've come to understand that I'm convinced that we cannot do the former unless we're willing and ready to do the latter. We're just not going to be able to properly rejoice with our brothers and sisters in Christ unless we've really been willing to enter into their pain, enter into their weeping, enter into their wrestling honestly, and just sit there with them and ask the questions why. The spiritual fruit of faithfulness expressed and experienced in the Christian community is found in this honest ability to enter into the wrestling match, to just sit with one another, or sit with our brothers and sisters in these questions. We're, we're to wrestle with, not shy away from these things. And so if your brothers and sisters are, are weeping, press in. Don't shy away from it. Don't, don't just be there when the good times are happening. Be there in the depths of the bad times. Be there in the hard times. Be there in the questions so that you can fully and properly rejoice when the time comes to rejoice. We are to rejoice in these various trials that life gives us. And we can do so in confidence of verse 5 in James chapter 1 here. Because verse 5 says that God gives wisdom generously to the one who asks in faith. So ask him wrestle with him. He answers you, gives it to you generously. But I feel the responsibility to warn you now, in case you haven't read all the way to the end of the book of Job, to be prepared for the response to look a bit different than maybe what you're hoping for. At the end of the book of Job, uh, God finally reveals himself to Job. He finally answers him, but he doesn't answer the questions of why. Instead, he reveals to him who. And, and you see, God reserves the right to answer the question that you ought to have asked or answer the question that you did ask the way that he knows is best. And so God reveals himself to Job in such a way that he responds, Job, in, in chapter 42, verse 5, he says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. I had understood you up here. I, I thought I understood what you were and who you were, 
but now, I, now, I've, now I've understood you in a whole new way. Now I've experienced you in a whole new way. And that, being, that ends up being good. That's, that's good enough. Job ends up finding comfort for all of his questions by being confronted with the God who is. He doesn't get answers to the question why. He gets a revelation of the one with all the answers. And that's enough. I promise it's enough. So at the end of the day, the spiritual fruit of faithfulness in our lives is going to look like wrestling. It's going to look like asking. But ultimately, it's exercised both individually and, and in our community by yielding to God in obedience. When, when, when Job gets his, his revelation of God, he doesn't get all the answers to his questions, yet he yields. I repent in dust and ashes. He, he understands that this God is one who's trustworthy. And that's what faithfulness is going to look like in our lives and in the lives of our community. So finally, uh, point number three. How does this life lead to blessedness? Look with me in verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Do you want to be blessed, right? Like that's what we're, we, we're all after that. And, and honestly, that's great. Like I said from the beginning, that is great. It's what you were created for. But I need you to hear something. Before you worry about whether or not your name is going to be written in the pages of history, I need you to rejoice in the fact that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You need to rejoice in that before you go worry about whether or not you're going to be known in history. See, the spiritual fruit of faithfulness is identifying with Christ. And identifying with Christ means that James is going to correct here what the world is telling these two different groups of people, both the poor and the rich. He's going to correct them in order that they would identify with Christ properly. And so if you're poor and the world around you is telling you that you're nothing, right? It's not, it's not hard for a poor person to look around and see their circumstances, someone that's been marginalized, someone that's been oppressed, to look around and say like, yeah, my life is cursed. It's not hard for me to understand that. It's not hard for me to, to think that way. And in, so that means that in history, this actually hasn't been a very hard sell for the poor. The poor understand that, but the poor read the gospel accounts and they see the majestic, transcendent God of glory willingly entering into their pain, coming and being like them in every respect. The poor see him promising to lift them up, and it brings them hope, a hope that transcends the cursed surroundings that they're looking at. They have an eternal hope, a lasting hope. See, Christianity says to the poor, they're telling you that you're cursed. They're telling you that you're nothing. But Christ became a curse for you so that you would be blessed. And the poor hear that, and it corrects, and it, and, it, and it brings a lasting hope that corrects their vision of what they see around them. But historically, the, the rich have a hard time with this. And, and I'm, I'm willing to bet that most of us would fall into this category. The rich, we could, we could say comfortable, the powerful, the affluent. The, those in the upper echelons of the socio, uh, so, uh, the, the, the spheres of, of, of sociology here, of society. James is correcting what the world is telling you. 
Because you look around and you say, yeah, my life's not that bad. I'm actually doing pretty good. Things are pretty well. And, and you'd, you'd be tempted to come to God, come to Christianity, come to faith only when things get hard so that you take that medication for three days and then when things are back to normal that you, you run again. But, but James is saying that if you are rich, you need to see how Jesus humbled himself and became poor for others. You need that to correct your vision. You see, Jesus in the gospel accounts, Jesus um, didn't tell us about humble he always, about how humble he is. He didn't tell us about how humble he is. Instead, he showed it to us. The night before he is crucified, he's washing the feet of the disciples, all of whom will have abandoned him, all of whom will have left him. That's humility. It, it's been said that humility is so shy, it goes away as soon as you start talking about it. Humility is seen. The rich, the comfortable, the powerful. These, these groups of people are more prone to not see their constant need for a savior because they look around and they just say, my life isn't that bad. I'm actually blessed. The rich are the more likely members of society that are gonna have trouble identifying themselves with, hear, hear me on this, with a poor homeless virgin that died to give you life. You're gonna have a harder time with that. And James is saying you need, to you need to see yourself, you need to identify with his humility. See, this is why Jesus can say, woe to you who are rich in Luke. Woe to you who are full now. Now. It, it's okay to be rich. Jesus doesn't condemn rich people for being rich. The point of Christianity, though, the point of the gospel is not riches now, it's future riches. It's riches in eternity. It's where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. And so the warning here is don't let the riches now, the fame now, the earthly glory, the comfort that you have now, don't let it outshine the power and beauty of the riches that are to come. These riches in this world, the comfort that you have, the influence that you have, whatever it may be, it is moth-eaten, dusty, and rusty compared to what is to come. Put your eyes there. Like Paul says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you're poor, boast in your exaltation in Christ. If you are rich, boast in his humiliation. Boast in the Lord. Regardless, though, we need to see that all of us, our primary need is to see our need for Jesus. We need to see that we actually have a need. See, all of us, regardless of where you are in society, all of us were spiritually bankrupt. Zeros in the account. You kept running that debit card, it kept coming back declined. But you need to see that Jesus came with his riches and, and credited your account with his wealth. It, you ever notice that it's, at the, it's near the end of his life that Paul calls himself the chief of sinners in his letter to Timothy? It, after a life of faithfulness, uh, Paul, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, the, the worst sinner. And so faithfulness across our life is, is not going to see that, that, you know, oh, I'm actually pretty good. I'm actually doing pretty well. Instead, faithfulness is going to expose the sin that you didn't know was there from day one. It's going to expose the depth of your sin to where you can identify with Paul and say, I am the chief of sinners. I have a need for Jesus at all times. And, and what it's going to do is it's going to turn your heart to praise. Because you're going to say, what God is great like our God? that would be so gracious to such a sinner like me. We need to see our need for Jesus. 
A life of faithfulness is simply going to lead you into a greater understanding of your dependence upon Jesus at all times and in all circumstances. So let me wrap up where we started in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The Lord Jesus is the only person in history who we could say with confidence lived the truly blessed life. And, and, and not a blessing that the, the world would confer upon him, but a, a true blessed life. He alone lived a life of perfect faithfulness. In fact, uh, when, you, when you read the gospel accounts and you see Jesus in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to his father, sweating drops of blood, wrestling with him as he looks into the cup of God's wrath that is about to be poured on him for us. He's, he's wrestling him with him and saying, Father, if there be any other way, right? He's wrestling with God. This is what we are to do. But what does he do? He says, but not my will, yours be done. He yields. He knows that God's way is better. Jesus, you see, Jesus alone deserved the crown of life that comes at the end of a life of faithfulness. But instead, he took upon himself our crown of thorns that we would have his crown of life, the, the crown that we deserve, the crown that we, we wanted, right? Thorns, remember, thorns represent the curse. We accepted that crown when we disobeyed, and Jesus took it upon his head so that we could have the blessed crown of life. If you are simply working to be a somebody, to be remembered as blessed here, to be found on the pages of history as someone that was blessed, had good things, I gotta tell you, you just, your, your sights are just set too low. Your sights are set too low. In Christ, your destiny is to wear the crown of life that comes at the end of a blessed life of faithful endurance. Faith that will finally be perfected in the presence of our risen Lord. You see, the blessing that your heart longs for is found only through, only through the Holy Spirit fruit of faithfulness to our God. Faithfulness over a lifetime that ends in glory. Would you pray with me? Our Father.